This morning I have entitled my message, Marriage, Roles and Responsibilities. And I have decided um, today in prayer this morning that I'm going to break this into two messages and to spare you. And because um, there's a lot here to unpack in this passage of scripture. And so I want to, before unpacking this text, I want to offer an apology and an invitation. First, I would like to begin by apologizing to you, to those of you who this text has been a source of pain or anger or anxiety by way of acknowledging that this text has been unjustly used as permission by some men, some husbands, to be dic dictatorial, condescending, and patronizing towards their wives. Second, I want to offer an invitation this morning to hear Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 as God's word. I want you to hear Paul's true intent in including this in his letter to the church of Ephesus. And if this passage of scripture is a source of contention for you, I don't want to minimize your pain. I empathize with you this morning. But the sources, you know, the sources of those feelings are real. But God can redeem them, amen? So can we hear this text this morning as good news for marriages in our church? God is a God of relationship. God is a God of function. He is a God of order, and he has put together household codes or orders for which he chooses to work through. And so that's the way that we are going to read and understand Ephesians 5:22 through 33. In order to do this, I believe that we should first pray. So let's just bow our heads and pray that God open our hearts. And Father, we come to you and your word with sometimes backgrounds and experiences, Lord, that become filters in which we filter it through. And if those backgrounds and experiences are negative, Lord, what comes out the other end of that filter is, is misunderstanding, mistruth, misinterpretation. So, Father, I pray that we would lay aside those filters right now and just open our ears to the true intent of what Paul is communicating here in this portion of Scripture. And, Lord, I pray that healing would come today for any wounds that are there, Lord, when we talk about submission, humility, uh, marital roles. I pray that you would bless this service, Lord. I pray that you would use me. I yield myself to you. I pray that your spirit communicate through me your truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The two major themes of the book of Ephesians, especially as we've looked at the second half of the book of Ephesians, is first, in Christ, we are one body, right? The key text there is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. If you want to flip back there to Ephesians 4, looking at verses 4 through 6, it says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to be one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So in Christ, one of the major themes Paul's writing here is this idea of oneness and unity. 
We're one body. He's our head, and we're the body. Second, we have been given different gifts. God has given all of you at least one spiritual gift, if not more. He's given you different roles, abilities to build up the body for what? For, into maturity, right? To build up the body in maturity in Christ. So oneness in Christ and being built up in Christ are the two major themes that frame, that Paul's using to frame what he has to say about marriage and our roles within it. The goal of a Christian marriage isn't to get what we want, right? The goal of a Christian marriage is to glorify God in oneness, in mutual submission and sacrifice in order to grow up into maturity in Christ. That's the goal. So how do husbands and wives accomplish this goal? Verse 22, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I think that as to the Lord is key. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. I was thinking about this, you know, when... If a husband was to read verse 22 and get big-headed and saying, oh, Paul's saying, honey, you're supposed to submit to me. That's not what Paul is saying. Your wife is not your maid. She's not inferior. She's not a little child. She's not someone to be abused or taken advantage of in the name of submission. And so we must not be tempted to misinterpret Paul's words as giving husbands permission to be dictatorial, condescending, or patronizing. Bible commentator John Stott wrote this. Regarding this temptation for misinterpretation, we have to be careful not to overstate this biblical teaching on authority. It does not mean that the authority of husbands is unlimited or that wives are required to give unconditional obedience. No, the submission required is to God's authority delegated to human beings. If, therefore, they misuse their God-given authority, example, by commanding what God forbids or forbidding what God commands, then our duty is to no longer conscientiously submit, but to conscientiously refuse to do so. Are you all with me? So this is the framework And here's the point. Just as Christ is one with his body and the church, the wife and husband are one. We see that back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that a man and woman shall leave their father and mother and be cleaved one together and become one flesh. Marriage is about oneness and mutual submission. Not two people trying to get the most out of it for their own selfish benefit. So Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. And some wives could say, what? I don't, I don't want to submit to anybody. That sounds humiliating and demeaning, yet that's exactly what Jesus did. He submitted to the will of his father, as Philippians 2 puts it. 
He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Last night at Yola's, we had our prayer gathering, our monthly prayer gathering, and Dave shared Philippians 2, and we prayed around that text, and I shared last night that that part of the text there, that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, really just really grabbed a hold of me last night. We see in, in Jesus this idea of submission, about being submitted to his Father's will. You know, Dave shared in the Garden of Gethsemane that there, Jesus prayed, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But if this be your will, then so be it, basically. Right? And he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we all know what the cross and that form of death looked like and who that was reserved for. It was reserved for criminals who created great acts of, of violence, great acts of crime. And, and yet, Jesus didn't deserve a criminal's death. But he died even on a cross. Jesus, who was equal with God, loved his body. Who is his body? It's the church. It's you and I. It's all of us here this morning. We are the body. We make up the church. We are the church. He loved us so much that he gave, that he willingly took the lowest seat and gave his life for us. So I think it's important to stop and define submission as Paul means it in the context of this text. See, our culture defines submission as being in a lower state or position. Our culture defines it as being um, this coerced response to power. However, biblical submission is a mutual surrender. It's following the example set by our Savior, Jesus Christ, in his incarnation that he left the comforts of heaven to take on human flesh. He lived a normal life. He was tempted in every way like us. And he gave his life for us on a cross. So this idea of biblical submission and humility is illustrated beautifully in the parable of the wedding feast in Luke 14. I want you to turn over there. You remember before we came to this portion of Scripture? I believe it's verse 21. Paul talks about this idea of us being submitted to one another. And then he continues on talking about this idea of wives and, and husbands being mutually submitted. Then we're going to be talking about how we're submit the submission within the home when it comes to parents and children and, and then in the workplace. So I really think it's important to understand biblical submission and humility. And we see this here in the parable of the wedding feast in Luke 14. A couple of years ago, our family um, learned that one of our Bible college professors, now this Bible college professor had a huge impact, made a huge investment in my life. She had went on to pastor a church that I ended up coming behind her and pas pastoring in the Twin Cities area. And I hadn't seen her since 2002. Um, I don't know if Lisa had classes with her, but she knew her quite well because I spent a lot of time um, at her home helping her with different projects, and Lisa would be there and, 
and she would ask me sometimes, are you dating me or are you <laughs> dating the school and, and Dr. Gill? And um, so Debbie Gill was going to be up at family camp, at this denomination family camp up in Wapaka, Wisconsin, and she was speaking at family camp. And I wanted to see her because I hadn't seen her since 2002 when we um, came. And Josh was two years old. Alyssa was just born. So they had no clue, no remembrance of her. And Caden obviously didn't know her at all. And so we took the afternoon and we drove up to Wapaka and we went to the auditorium where she was going to be speaking. She wasn't yet present and the seats were filling up. Um, we were just there, not for the week, but just for that one session. And all the seats in the auditorium, there were some up in the front row, but all the rest of the seats in the middle were taken. And so there was only seats in the back. And so we just headed towards the back. We didn't need to sit up front. We were fine just being in the back of the auditorium and getting ready to listen to her speak. A few minutes later, one of the leaders of the camp showed up and noticed our family. I don't know if Debbie had clued him in that we were coming and he was keeping an eye out for us, but he noticed our family and he came over and he welcomed us and he said, you're not sitting back here. And he, and we got up and we walked up to the front and he sat us down towards the front of the auditorium. Then as Debbie um, took the stage, she noticed us and she noticed the family and she had us all stand and she went on to share about um, our experiences and ministering together and how I had come behind her and pastored and said a lot of great things and we got to spend the rest of the afternoon with her. And she asked all the attendees there to give us a warm welcome. Everybody stood up and really did give us a warm welcome. And that experience reminded me of this principle in the kingdom that Jesus refers to here in Luke 14, 7 through 11, when he told this parable. And I want to read these scriptures. It says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But, verse 10, but, what, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be ex exalted. If we read this parable from an orphan-based mentality, and let me define what I mean by that. Orphans don't feel loved. They don't feel provided for or cared for. They have to fight for everything they don't share because they hold on to what they have and fear that it will be taken away from them and they'll be without. Orphans don't possess an inheritance or a family. It's me against the world. This mentality is a root for so many different identity issues. So if we read this passage of scripture, if we come to this idea of humility and submission with an orphan-based mentality, we are left with 
this twisted mindset of what submission is all about. See, friends, you have to see true biblical submission through the lens of love. Paul opened chapter 5 talking about the need for us to walk in love, to be submitted to one another, to be children of light. We have to see this through the lens of love. God's love for us. And if we don't, we'll interpret it something like this. Because you have little value to God, don't think too highly of yourself either. If you read it and interpret it from that perspective, you will continually look for opportunities to reaffirm that belief. Instead of seeing yourself as a beloved son or daughter of your heavenly father, you will settle for a lowly servanthood. Woe is me. Where you seek to establish your identity through what you do or how you see yourself. And that's so easy to do in our culture today that says you need to measure up. You need to pull yourself up. You need to promote yourself. You need to hustle. Seize the moment. Who you are, friends, is not what you do. God is the only one who has the authority to tell you who you are, and he has done that through his word and through his life. And the more that we live in love, the less we will look for ways to justify our place in daddy's house. Did you hear me this morning? The more that we live and walk and understand his love, the less we will look for ways to justify our place in daddy's house. When his love begins to ruin us for anything else, we will begin to see that true submission and humility is not about us thinking less of ourselves, but it's about thinking of ourselves less. As a result, we don't have to be the one to take the biggest and best seat, the most honored seat in the house, because we are happy to take the lowest seat and leave the chair of honor open for someone else to live in. How does this look in a workplace environment or a team? Maybe you have the best idea, but it's humbling yourself and letting someone else have the idea and get the credit. And if someone comes to us and invites us to sit in the chair of honor, so be it. If not, no problem, because it really isn't that important anyway, because I know who I am to my father. And if it's that important to you, there might be something of an orphan mindset lingering in you that Jesus wants to love out of you. So my prayer for each of you today is that you will be so filled with the revelation of the father's love for you. I pray that your identity and self-worth would no longer be determined by the, this addiction for approval. So he says, wives, as beloved daughters of your heavenly father, are you willing to come under the protection and security and the leadership of your husbands, my God-ordained head for your home, in order that together you may be built up into maturity in Christ? Notice from Philippians 2, Christ emptied himself. It was voluntary. Your submission is not forced. 
If it is, then your husband is not worthy of it, nor is it an act of love. I think it's important to note here that Paul is dressing, addressing wives here as free moral agents. As ones who have a choice of whether or not they're going to submit. Who can choose whether or not they're going to come under the leadership of their husbands. It's also important because in this time, he is speaking to women who have not had a choice. But he says there's a new kingdom, and you have a choice. And if you're a wife, I don't know what willing submission looks like for you. I'm not even sure what it looks like for Lisa, my wife. We talked about this some this past week. We both agreed that it takes hard work on both sides. It requires honesty and trust and security and love, and it's hard when that trust has been broken to give yourselves to submission. Husbands, if your wife is going to voluntarily submit to your leadership as Christ has modeled for us, then she must know that she's secure in doing so. She must know that she is safe there, that you have submitted yourself to your Father's will. Wives, as you willingly submit to your husband's leadership, you follow the example of your Savior, and Jesus is glorified in your marriage. The point of willing submission isn't just that you or your husband individually would be built up, but together as one flesh, you both are built up into maturity in Christ. True biblical submission is doing what's best for the other person. And in this case, for the marriage, in a lifestyle of Christ-like love, it is the act of willingly and cheerfully submitting your speech, your preferences, your expectations, your time, and your attitude in order, in order that you show respect to one another. And yes, you can have your own personality. And yes, you can have your own opinions about things. And you can own your own, use your own God-given gifts and still be considered submissive. It's allowing others to win here. It's allowing your husband to lead, to take on that mantle. Some husbands are like, honey, you can make all the decisions. I'm just going to go to work and... I'll be up in my room or I'll be out with the guys. You can make all the decisions. But you know what, wives, when you submit to your husband's leadership, as you recognize God's mantle upon his life to be that leader, that spiritual leader in your home, you are creating a protection for your home from the fiery darts of the enemy. There is a great responsibility there, husbands, to walk in that authority. I want to um, have Jesse and the girls come. I just felt I, I can, there's time, and I could continue to go into the husband's role, and I could continue to talk about that, but I want to save that for next week. And I just want to stop right now because I feel like, as we prayed last night, as we were praying this morning, that there might be some of you that are here present right now or some of you that are watching online right now and 
And this whole idea of submission is hard for you because you're living with that orphan mentality. Maybe you connected with what I shared just a little bit ago. I think as we look at this passage of Scripture and everything that I've shared up until this point, is that our marriages are truly a reflection of what the church should be, right? Christ modeled it in this passage that we'll get into next week. He was calling the husbands to love his wife, to lay down his life like he laid down his life for the church. Um, and I just want to say that submission is not about, like I said, it's not giving up your rights, it's not giving up your opinions, it's not not utilizing your gifts. Lisa pays the bills in our home. Um, I help. It's, it's something that she's good at, and she's taken on the responsibility. That's something we established early on in our marriage relationship. We talk about things. We pray about things. We listen to one another's opinions and, and ideas. And because there's mutual love and sacrifice for one another, we can be confident that whether whoever it is making the decision is making the best decision for our home. And I know that's not always the case, and I'm going to talk about that. What if you are in a relationship with a spouse who's not serving Christ? We're going to talk about that next week. But I wanted Jesse to sing that song, and I really feel like we have to see this. I really feel like for our church right now, I really feel like this going through Ephesians has been like laying a foundation for, for, for what God is building here. And for whatever reason, he's had us camped here starting in January. Matt, Matt shared from Ephesians 4 this idea of unity. Dave talked about it last week, about loving God is always tied to loving others. Now we're going to see how this plays out in our homes how this plays out into the church. And this idea of submission is a huge thing. Humility. It's the opposite of what our flesh wants. We have to fight for it. It's hard work. It's hard work. And I told Lisa, I'm not very emotional. I don't usually cry. Sometimes I beat myself up for that. Like, how come you don't feel more sad about things? But when we were reading Philippians 2 last night, it just wrecked me. That my Savior was the ultimate example for what he wants from me and from his church. And it helped me to see these things in a different way. I wrote down in my notes this morning, it's so easy to mouth the words of a song like how deep the Father's love for us and still live our lives as if those lyrics aren't true. I said, why do we so often live our lives as orphans? How different would our lives be if we lived them each day in full assurance that we have a father whose heart is good and who loves us like crazy? The same age-old message of our enemy, Satan, has not changed since the garden. What did he say to Adam and Eve? God is holding out on you. You need to take matters into your own hands and get as much out of life as possible before it's over. You are on your own. And that is such a big lie. 
And that's the message that the enemy and our inner critic tell us over and over during the circumstances of life. But friends, if you have bought this lie, if you're wrestling with the truth of the gospel, fighting to believe it, struggling to apply it, attempting to get your arms around it, if you've been deeply wounded by someone and it's hard to trust again, we want to pray with you this morning. As I said earlier, I want to pray that you receive a revelation of the Father's love for you. I pray that your identity and self-worth would no longer be determined by the affirmation and approval of others. I want to pray that you'll be able to love and trust again, knowing who you are as a son and daughter of God. The truth is that God loves each of us so intensely and is pursuing our hearts. He's pursuing the hearts of the people in this city. And he's a good God. He's a good father. He delights in you. And guess what? Because this is true, it's not all up to us to figure out this thing called life. And that's good news. I don't have to stand up here as your pastor and have all the answers. I can lean on the gifts of my brothers. I can lean on the gifts of my sisters. I can lead with humility, recognizing that I'm not the only one. I'm not alone. My Heavenly Father loves me. I'm secure in that identity. And you have gifts. You have things to bring to the table. So I'm inviting you all to come to the table in unity and oneness, to be a model of what Christ wants to show this world, this messed up world, this messed up culture of really what it looks like for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. It's counterculture, and that's what God's calling us to. So will you stand with me this morning? Oh, Lord, I thank you for this strong but loving word that you've led us to this morning. Lord, when I took this mantle, when I took this responsibility, I took it knowing that I wasn't alone, that you've given us a beautiful body here that we call Metro Believers Church. And Lord, it was never my intent to do it without anybody. It's never my intent to do it alone or to do it my way. You are building something beautiful. Even reminded of that this morning, Lord, as I watched Jesse and Trinia and Joya lead us in worship. Lord, how their personalities came out through the words that they sang from the lyrics of the songs. A family worshiping and honoring you together as one, one family, serving one God, one spirit. Lord, I feel like the enemy would, he doesn't like unity. He doesn't like oneness. He doesn't like when people get along. He doesn't want the church to thrive. So he brings these lies. He brings up things from the past. He, 
he brings strife, he tries to divide, he, he isolates and he corners us and he prowls looking like a lion, looking for a sheep, for a lone um, animal to devour. So there's power in submission. There's power in standing together. He can't take on a whole group. That's why he individualizes us and he isolates us. We say to you right now, in the name of Jesus, we're coming together as a unified body to stand against your schemes. We plead the blood of Jesus and all the promises of the word of God that we have been sealed in Christ, that we are adopted into our Father's family and we have an inheritance, not because of what we've done, but we received it in faith because of what our Father has done for us. So we walk in that authority. We walk in that assurance. We clothe ourselves in that truth. And we stand against your lies. And we fight for our brothers and sisters today who have been wounded, who have had bad experiences, who have are finding it hard to trust again because of what evil people have done or how Scripture has been misinterpreted or how hurting people have hurt them. And we pray, Lord, that you would release health and life and vitality again into their lives. That they would begin to walk as beloved sons and daughters of Jesus. I pray that you would heal their open wounds, that you would mend them in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.